Welcome to Bodcast, the business of dentistry podcast, brought to you by Practice Plan. Bodcast delivers the best business advice, real-life stories, and practical hints and tips to make your practice a more profitable and sustainable business. And now, here's your host. Hello, my name is Nigel Jones. I'm the sales and marketing director of uh, the Practice Plan Group of Companies, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Sarah Buxton, who will be known to most if not all of you now for her expertise when it comes to um, employment law and how it impacts on dentistry and dental practices. So welcome Sarah. Thank you, thank you for having me again. Well absolutely delighted, um, always value uh, your your views and your knowledge and your information and I know we get great feedback from people that listen to these podcasts so I'm very grateful to you for giving up the time for us. Now we've got a very specific topic that we want to cover today which arises from the Sedgepal v Roderick's um, case that was uh, 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 recently in the press and um, gained a certain amount of coverage and that's to do with um, self-employed status of associates or associate worker status depending on on how you interpret things. So I, I wonder if we could kick off this podcast by you just summarising what that case was all about. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to take it back a step and just look at the current law and where we stand. Um, so there are three types of employment status. Um, there are self-employed persons who have lots of flexibility, have tax advantages, um, but they have very few rights under the employment regulations. Um, at the other end of the scale, we have employees who are heavily protected under the employment legislation um, and they don't enjoy the same tax advantages and maybe don't have the same flexibility that a self-employed person would have. And then we have this status in the middle um, called a worker, which is a quasi status, which they have some rights under the law, so they have the right to be paid holiday pay, uh, statutory maternity, paternity, sick pay, but what they don't have is the right to bring an unfair dismissal claim. Um, and that's the situation in the employment tribunal. And that's not to be confused with the tax tribunal because um, in the tax legislation, uh, we have two types of employment status, self-employed and employee. And you may be found to be self-employed in the tax tribunal, but you could be a worker or an employee in the employment tribunal. So it's really under important that people have that understanding um, before we look at this particular case. Um, because in this case, the self-employed associate um, wanted to bring a claim in the employment tribunal over some um, in respect of some legislation such as maternity um, and unfair dismissal which you would only ordinarily have if you were or are a worker or employee. So the first thing the employment tribunal has to look at in those circumstances is the status of the employee and whether they are self-employed, worker or employee, um, because depending on where they fit depends on what claims they can bring to the tribunal. Right. So in, in respect of what's happened to date, um, the employment tribunal has heard the first stage as to whether this dentist is genuinely self-employed or not. And it was 
um, decided at first instance to the employment tribunal um, that they did um, have self-employed um, status and that was appealed. Um, so we went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal and what we've heard and what we've seen in the press is the Employment Appeal Tribunal's judgment on whether this dentist who was claiming worker status genuinely was um, self-employed or not. It hasn't, and I think this is really important, had uh, opened the floodgates um, to all of a sudden all dentists uh, who have been self-employed are now workers. That's not what's happened. All that's happened is that the Employment Tribunal, Appeal Tribunal, has said that they don't believe that the Employment Tribunal has looked at the case correctly um, and therefore it's gone back to the Employment Tribunal to make a decision. So we don't actually, we still don't know if this individual dentist, where they will fit, employee, worker or self-employed. We don't know because nobody's made a decision. Um, but what's important is the Employment Appeal Tribunal has picked up on some issues that we can all learn from, um, that it, it believes that the Employment Tribunal needs to look at in more detail when determining um, employment status. So, so uh, the, there's two important things in what you've said so far, Sarah. Um, one is it's not a precedent that um, will uh, completely change the face of dentistry, um, but there are some important learns from it, which will be, um, I, I guess, quite detailed um, from a contractual point of view. Um, from, from what I've read so far, the, the Employment Appeal Tribunal were picking up on certain nuances that, that they felt that the Employee Tribunal didn't do. Is that, is that, is that the right That's way of looking at it? That, that's exactly the, the right way of looking at it. And I think this is an important um, point to know that this associate had a 2010 version of a BDA agreement. So quite an old, I would say, stale agreement in place. Um, and this is why we always say you must update your agreements, um, whether employed or, or self-employed um, agreements on an annual basis and, and review them to make sure that they are up to date with the current um, laws and, and regulations that are in place. Because I think part of what's happened in this situation is the law has moved on from 2010. Um, and yet this agreement, this contract hasn't been updated. Um, but notwithstanding that point, it, it, if the contract is a sham, um, then actually the it doesn't make any difference because what's important is the reality of the situation and what happens in practice. So both practice owner and associates have got to understand their contracts and what they're signing up to. Um, but obviously the starting point will always be a contract where the judge will look in this situation. Um, so I think the first point we can take out of this is do make sure that you review and update your contracts. Yeah, absolutely. And then that that second point seems to me to have been uh, important in this particular situation about how the what what's in writing matches the reality of the day to day relationship between the the individual and her um, the person that was I, I nearly said employer, but that would have been entirely wrong. Yes, so um, <laughs> yeah, that disengaged yeah. her services because because that, that there can often be a mismatch between 
what's in the contract and and what reality is. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this is the case with one of the clauses that were picked up in, in this case. So one of the things that a judge will look at when determining whether someone is self-employed or worker or even employee is they will look at whether you um, as a self-employed person have to perform that work personally. Um, so the best way to understand that is I'm an employee. Um, I can't send somebody else in to do my job tomorrow. If you're self-employed, you should be able to substitute or put somebody else in place. And you should be able to do that without limitation. Now, in this contract, um, there was a locum clause or a substitution clause, um, but it, it was limited because it had to be um, the locum who was put in place had to be satisfactory, not only to the PCT at the time, um, when well, we've moved on from there. So it probably, you know, the NHS, the local area team and so on. But it was the PCT, but also to the practice owner. And the question is whether that limits the right of substitution. Um, also in this clause, it says you can only put a locum in place after 14 days. Um, and I do understand that because quite often I get practice owners saying 14 days is ideal for me because my associate won't take more than two weeks holiday. Um, so I'll never have to put a locum in place. Um, but then the question is whether the associate does have to do the work personally if they've never exercised this clause if the clause is limited in these circumstances um, and also whether it's a sham um, because have you ever really genuinely put a locum in place um, and this is quite often where I'll say to my clients I worry about more I do see a lot of locums being put in place with associates um, and quite often they'll have um, locum insurance as well to um, cover the costs of that, which is very important. So that's my other tip <laughs> from this uh, uh, podcast today. Make sure that you do have locum insurance in place. Um, but hygienists and therapists, when they're self-employed, it's very rare that my clients will tell me that they've put locums in place or they are genuinely able to substitute. So I think we've got more of a risk uh, with hygiene and, and therapists who are claiming to be self-employed. Um, but then I have lots of practices who are happy for have locums in place from day one um, and they don't limit. Um, the difficulty with here in this situation is um, I do understand why the clause was limited, especially for NHS dentistry, um, because they'll need to have a performer number, they'll need to work in a certain way. But by putting that clause in there, um, you may be limiting that clause. So it's quite difficult for NHS dentists to have a unfettered or unlimited substitution clause because they have to comply with the NHS regulations in that regard. So that's really an interesting point. There's a tension that exists then between fulfilling your obligations to the NHS and meeting the requirements of self-employed status of the people that you are delegating care to. So, so how does an NHS dentist resolve that tension? Um, it's really difficult because my advice would be you have to comply with the NHS and take the risk um, that it, it's just something that you may um, have to deal with at some time should you get into a dispute with your associates. Um, there's a bigger risk that the NHS 
um, would come down on you or serve breach notices or you could um, have issues within your business if you don't comply with the um, what the NHS are asking you to do. Um, I've just had a, a similar case myself where it was an NHS um, situation, um, a self-employed uh, associate trying to claim that they were a worker so they could bring certain claims and what one of the things that the judge looked at was the NHS target um, because that is quite controlling and the more control you have over somebody the more likely it is you go from self-employed to worker to employee um, so this is where we look at self-employed indicators and how much control you have and the judge commented that to have an NHS target is controlling. Um, you don't usually control self-employed individuals. Um, but what I would say is that this practice was very good at agreeing the NHS target every year with rather than enforcing it upon their associates. Um, and they got their agreement in writing to their target. And the judge said, well, I can kind of see where that's not control if you're agreeing something. Um, but it's a huge risk because you've got to have an NHS target in your associate agreements because you don't want to get stung for underperformance or clawback. Um, so unfortunately for NHS dentists, it, they're in a much trickier position when it comes to self-employed worker and employee status and protecting their practice. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. So although um, it, we shouldn't view this as opening up the floodgates, it, it does raise some important questions that um, particularly the, um, the, the in England, the holders of an NHS contract need to think carefully about if they're going to use associates. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to get the balance because it, it is you have a business to run and you've got to run that in a way that is um, that grows or is profitable. Or you have a happy team, whatever your objectives are for running that business. Um, but then what you've also got to do is balance that with the risk of having a claim like this um, in this particular case, because at the moment, um, what we're finding is because of the um, economy and where we're at, we're finding that there is an influx in um, people bringing employment tribunal claims in this manner. Um, so it's a real risk at the moment. Um, and I do think uh, private and NHS dentists need to, I know they've had a lot on their plates um, and it's been a very difficult few years, but it may be a time to reset and just review your contracts um, and make sure that you are protected should something like this happen to you and it may be that you have the best relationship in the world at the moment with your associates but um, believe me it can go wrong um, so it's it's just really important to just rethink and, and just review what you've got in place. And, and just to add weight to that Sarah so um, it, if what what are the the risks what what might it cost a practice owner who doesn't get this quite right? Um, well, in the employment tribunal, the first thing is that you do not have um, uh, the uh, uh, in other courts, you have the ability to claim back legal costs if you um, win your case. You don't have that in the employment tribunal. So as soon as you have an employment tribunal claim, you have legal costs. 
um, because you have to deal with it, whether you've got the best case in the world or not. And you have to pay those legal costs, whether you win or lose your case. It's incredibly stressful. It goes on for years. And at the moment, there's a huge backlog in the employment tribunals. And so I'm not um, exaggerating when I say it can go on for a long time. And I imagine that we won't get the decision of this employment tribunal um, because uh, in this Sedgepal case um, for a few months yet um, because it's the back of the backlog. Um, so that's the first thing to think about commercially is that it costs you in time and stress and legal fees. But also there's the compensation element of it that if this and then let's take it in this case, let's say this dentist does manage to get over the threshold of being a worker they then will have protection and I believe that they've made a claim for pregnancy and maternity. Um, discrimination um, because they believe they were treated differently during their maternity leave. Well, that's unlimited compensation. So that is whatever the judge believes is fair and equitable in these circumstances. Um, so it could be anything um, from £6,000 to £600,000. You know, the highest payout for a sexual harassment claim is £4.5 million. Um, so um, and, and this is the other point, um, that in these circumstances, you need to make sure as a practice that you're protected in that you have legal expenses insurance in place um, because that will um, cover any out-of-court settlement judgment and your legal fees and um, so just check that you do have that product in place as well to protect you because the cost of that will be a lot less than what you may have to pay out in compensation or, or legal fees and um, so it, it's definitely not only the the monetary aspect of it but when I go through this with clients, I know it's incredibly stressful for them. It's not nice going through the legal process. Um, and I deal with it every day. Um, but for them, it, it you know, it, it's something that it's another headache to add on top of everything else that they're having to do when really they should be concentrating on running their business. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose in, in summary, then it, it, it's not a precedent that that should massively disrupt things um it's something that we need to take seriously and there are certain steps that uh, practice owners um, should consider taking first and foremost is review the contract make sure it's up to date with not references to pcts and and uh, uh, the fact that it has kept pace with changing law um that uh it, it, the reality is matched by um well complements what's written into the contract um, but then with a particular thought for NHS dentists because of some of the tension that exists between what they have to do to satisfy the requirements of the NHS contract versus the, the risks associated with um, compromising uh, the the status of their associates there so so it, it it sounds like it's not something that we should be feeling right that's it it's the end of self-employed status as we know it but there are some some learning points in there that people need to take away and think about quite carefully. Yeah, absolutely. I for an associate dentist who has a, a an up to date contract in place with many self employed indicators in there, um, which has 
uh, you know, and I will say this, been drafted by a, a legal professional, um, because quite often if you if you download a template and try and play around with a template, um, with all due respect, it's probably not the same as having a legal somebody who's who who's trained to do that and can look at it and make sure um that it is fit for purpose it won't be the same um so i think make sure that the contract you're satisfied that it it is fit for purpose and make sure that the reality of the situation suits that contract so um the, there's no point having something in a contract and it's a sham because ultimately if a case ever happens and like I say they are on the increase and that's really you know prevention is better than the cure let's sort it out and get the contracts in place and get them all sorted um before we end up um or, or in case we end up in a dispute um because the judge will look at the reality of the situation and take the contract as a, the starting point um but yeah I don't want people to go away and worry about this because each and every single um, dentist who may try and claim that they're self-employed, uh, claim that they're not self-employed, sorry, and a worker or employee, um, it will a decision will be made based on their individual cases because so many practices run their teams in different ways. Um, so it's quite important that how you run your team and the contract fit um, correctly. Okay. No, that that makes perfect sense. And I think um, your counsel about prevention being better than cure, given some of the implications, as you've said, I think that that is, is, is such sensible advice. So thank you very much, Sarah. I certainly feel a lot more reassured after um, listening to your explanation and account of the, the current situation. I guess we'll watch with interest to see what happens at yeah. the next stage. But uh, thank you so much for giving up your time today to um, to share your, your knowledge with with our listeners. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks, Sarah.